Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Carl Zimmer. He is an award-winning New York Times columnist and the author of 13 books about science. His newest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. It's an exploration of the most intimate mystery of all, how our ancestors helped make us who we are. It traces the history of heredity as a scientific question and a cultural touchstone. She Has Her Mother's Laugh was chosen as a notable book of the year by the New York Times Book Review and the best science book of 2018 by The Guardian. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it and many other things. I give you Carl Zimmer. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so rare that I have a guest that's so like technically uh, adroit. Like I'm, I'm looking, it's just audio, so our, our listeners can't see your setup, but I'm like, God, oh, this is beautiful. It's like a man after my own heart. He's got like a sweet <laughs> little audio setup in his, in his office. Carl, you write the Matter column for the New York Times. Uh, you are, you've written several books. Your newest, most recent one is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, and you have this great podcast, What is Life? You do all this stuff with science and you have a bachelor's degree in English. Like I, I'm fascinated. Like how do you go from an English major to becoming someone who actually teaches science at Yale? I mean, that that's so interesting. I mean, I like you, you did, were you always like passionate about science as a kid? Uh, you know, did you, were they sort of like, is it one of those things where like the, you want to be a jet fighter and you're colorblind? They say, you can't do this. <laughs> so you write about science. I mean, what, like, it's just an interesting story you seem to have. How do you wind up writing about science and not being a scientist? I, you know, I am like a lot of people that um, I've always been fascinated by science and science is just one of the things that makes life worth living. And, um, but you know, I, I kind of thought of myself when I was a kid as um, being a writer. I just, I like to write, you know, short stories and things like that. Um, and then I dabbled with journalism. You know, I uh, interned at a, our, our local newspaper, you know, in a summer college. And so I was kind of vaguely thinking in something having to do with journalism. And then a couple of years out of college, I was fortunate enough that there was a entry level job opening at a magazine about science discover. So I went there and I did copy editing and then I did other, you know, entry level things. And after a while I got to do a little writing and went on from there. And just, you know, the more time I spent with it, the more I realized I really liked it. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I don't do, I mean, my definition of a scientist is somebody who does scientific research, but um, I do like talking to scientists a lot and hanging out with them and reading their work and watching science happen and sort of exploring the history of it too. So, um, so it, you know, I, I guess, you know, when I was younger, one of the big challenges I s felt was about being a writer. I was like, well, what am I supposed to write about? <laughs> you know, what what is there to write about? And um, science gives you no end of things to write about. Do you, I, I imagine like if you're at a cocktail party, your average cocktail party or something, you're probably like one of the most informed about science in the room, assuming that there's not a bunch of scientists, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a mixed kind of crowd. Uh, like when you're at a party with like scientists, do you ever get like science envy? I mean, you think you ever, <laughs> are you like, oh my gosh, imposter syndrome? Like, I mean, do you, how, how does that work? Like, because most people in the country don't know a lot about science, right? So most of the time, you're probably the most informed person scientifically in a lot of rooms you're in with non-specialists, and other times you're sort of with all these specialists. Yeah, well, in this line of work, you have to be ready to be publicly stupid. You know, you just have to just call someone up or pay them a visit and say, you know, I can't say that I, you know, know a whole lot about what you've been thinking about and working on for the past 20 or 30 years, but I'd, I'd like to find out. Um, and, uh, and so you just have to put your ignorance out there, um, which is, you know, difficult. And, uh, it's a, when I work with people who, uh, with students who are interested in science writing, that's actually very tough for them because, you know, they've, they've gotten into college because 
they were, you know, were always showing grownups how much they know. And now I'm saying like, okay, now you have to give that up and just admit that you don't know stuff. Um, Because that's what I do every day. Uh, And um, so, uh, you know, and and I think, you know, scientists themselves, um, if they're honest, you know, they don't know a a whole lot about fields outside their own science. And, you know, I think that, you know, the ones who claim to know everything uh, get themselves in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you you recently did this podcast called What is Life, which I want to commend to all my listeners, it's it's just great. I mean, it it because that's the title is exactly what it sounds like. I mean, you're asking about what's the nature of life, how did it originate, what do we, and you did this great exercise with one of your guests. It, you know, it, it's sort of like I'd liken it to you say to somebody, "What's a sport?" And they can say, you know, baseball, football, basketball. But then we start to say, "Well, is chess a sport? Is is this a sport? Is ice sculpture a sport?" And it gets harder. Like we think we know what it means, and you sort of do this exercise with life. Like you say, "This is a rusty nail. Here's the virus in it, and in in a glass thing that's freeze dried. And here's a little robot monkey, and, and, and these kinds of questions that are uh, you do that with a with a real elegant kind of simplicity. Uh, what? How did you? Why, why the What is Life podcast? Like, what, what inspired that? Like, what, why, why, how'd you choose the guests? I mean, what was, how'd that idea percolate for you? Well, a friend of mine named Ben Lilly, um, he was opening up a venue in New York City called Caveat. Um, he had just, uh, f- brought into existence this wonderful organization called Story Collider, which is a podcast in itself, but also a series of live, uh, events where, People talk about science. They get, tell stories about science. And now he was going to be just opening up his own place. And so he was trying to figure out, like, what kind of events can I kick off with? And, um, you know, I was happy to kick some ideas around with him. And, you know, I I said, you know, one thing I really enjoy doing is just having conversations with biologists about what life is, because the conversations are always crazy and, and nobody agrees with each other. And it's just always a very mind uh, expanding experience. And he's like, great, do it. So <laughs> I sort of, you know, very quickly talked myself into this, uh, you know, live series of conversations. <laughs> so, uh, he and I, and, and some producers, we, you know, worked it out. You know, we, we tried to find the right balance of people, right balance of perspectives, uh, and, and specialties. And then we just kind of organized, uh, a series of, of, uh, events. And we ended up with eight speakers and, um, you know, we, People, everyone from, you know, astrobiologists to philosophers to geologists, and it was great. Um, and we were recording all of it, and uh, eventually we were able to push it all out as podcasts. Um, and uh, yeah, it was real. It was my first time doing anything l- quite like that, and uh, it was a huge amount of fun. Yeah, and, and you could tell you were having fun. I mean, it's one of those things where the, I mean, it's great about the medium. You could tell there, a lot of the energy comes through in the audio and these sound like conversations that, that anybody that's kind of curious and considers themselves an armchair intellectual would love to be able to have a chance to have. One of the things that strikes me is the honesty about ambiguity that, that several, both some of the philosophers, some of the scientists, uh, the astrobiologists, which sounds like the greatest thing to study in the world. I, there, there's some, there's an honesty about ambiguity, which I, I think sometimes in public life, gets mistaken for, ah, we're not sure about anything, right? I mean, this is one of the challenging things about covering science, right? How do you do justice to the fact that you're always trying to get research that is provable and disprovable, and so you're always on a discovery track, and you're honest about what you don't know, which is what propels discovery, and yet not having the public misinterpret that as, ah, we're just, you know, throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. I mean, how do you sort of strike the balance to, to, to... paint a responsible picture of how the scientific endeavor works um it's <laughs> it's 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 a big challenge and and it's never like it gets easy um because you know uh, you you always have to bear in mind that you know some study that you are writing about might uh might not replicate um or uh that uh somebody may discover something that totally kind of spins everything into a new perspective. Uh, On the other hand, um, you know, you don't want people to sort of feel like, um, you know, it's a science is some sort of cafeteria where you get to pick and choose what you want to believe just to fit your worldview, you know. So if you'd rather not um, have a world in which, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, traps heat and causes a greenhouse effect, then 
sorry. I mean, that's just that's just how it is. Um, you know, we may not know precisely like how sensitive the climate is to doubling the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's a source of uncertainty, but it's not like, well, does it does it trap heat or not? You know, we've known that for a long time. So sometimes, you know, one way to deal with that is to really um, is to use history. You know, the the a lot of what we know about the climate we've known for like over a hundred years, and nothing in that time has challenged those basic tenets at all. So, um, so you know, it, so if you can sort of you know really like locate that that edge of uncertainty and show people where it is and show that there are you know lots of places in science that are not near the edge of uncertainty uh, i think that can help people to understand what science can tell us and you know how how we should also look at some of the results as being tentative yeah do you find like as you talk with scientists like because my guess is like there's um, oftentimes research scientists are probably not often greeted by people who are so curious and interested in talking about what they're doing that are not in their discipline, right? You know, that oftentimes, is it, I mean, do you, do you find generally there's this kind of, uh, oh, wow, you want to talk about this with me? That's great. Is that, I mean, how, how do they react with you when you want to kind of engage with them? Oh, um, well, I have found always, I mean, long before I was writing for the New York Times that, um, scientists really like to share their work and their findings. Uh, and, and, you know, I, you know, I write about biology and I will sometimes really go, you know, deep into some pretty, you know, obscure little corners of biology, you know, dealing with some weird little critter that, you know, only a few people have ever heard of, but is really cool. Um, and, you know, I may come across some mention of it in a journal and then track down the person who did the work. And I think they're just amazed and delighted that somebody found them. So, uh, yeah. So then they're like, yeah, what do you want to know? Um, so I, it, that's one of the things that makes science journalism uh, very different than other kinds of journalism, which is that, uh, you know, if you're writing about um, you're writing about politics, you know, like a lot of times, like the people you want to write about are like actively trying to avoid you. <laughs> and that's just not the case in science journalism. I mean, there are there are certainly stories in science where um, you need to make scientists feel uncomfortable um, because if they've done something that they're not happy uh, letting the world know about, you know, some sort of uh, misconduct, you got to write about that too. Um, but, you know, there, there's just a lot of, um, there, there's just, yeah, just a lot of scientists who are just thrilled that, uh, that, that people like, like us want to, want to talk about their stuff. I, I was fascinated. One of the things, the conversations you had with a guy who is a philosopher of science who was saying like astrobiologists, like, love him like you know they're they're, they're always because there's, there's this kind of burgeoning interdisciplinary field and you know he says but other people say you know like there's some biologists other scientists that say yeah that like philosophy of science is as relevant to science scientists as you know ornithology is to birds and, and yeah yeah and that's just interesting how different fields sometimes there's this interdisciplinary turf war and animosity and other times there seem to be these places like you know you find like a lot of times biologists and religious philosophers and stuff have all this acrimony and yet, and then people that are into cosmology because of the big bang, a lot of these other philosophers, they find it easier to talk. And I mean, it's just interesting how these different cross sections interact. I mean, like, it, it, like, have you seen patterns of like, okay, these people play well in the sandbox and, and these people don't, you know, have, do you come across that stuff? And, you know, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, a lot of scientists just, you know, they they develop their careers. They have a certain way of being a scientist, and you know that's all they want to do. And they kind of want other people to kind of like leave them alone. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just let me, you know, just let me do my science. Uh, don't don't bug me with with all this. Don't bug me with your philosophy. Don't don't bug me with your. <clears throat> you know, your politics or ethics or don't, you know, even other brand, you know, scientists will even like get a little annoyed when other scientists from other fields say like, hey, maybe we could collaborate. Maybe there's something here at the intersection between, you know, geology and biology that's, that's interesting. Um, and, you know, and part of it is because, um, you know, part, a lot of it is actually language, I would argue. Like, you know, if you get, um, you know, I, I once said in a, a meeting 
there were some geneticists and social scientists together. And um, the social scientists started like talking about, you know, social constructions, um, which is like a hugely important thing in social science. Like, how is it that there are these social, you know, entities, concepts, what have you, that societies essentially create for themselves and, and rely on. And the geneticists are like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, are, like, are you saying like we build them like, like construction workers or something? They were, just, <laughs> they were like, they just could not understand what the, the social scientists were saying. And so the social scientists like had to stop and they were like, whoa, like I have to like explain this basic foundational things to these folks. Um, but, you know, then the geneticists would get up and they would start talking about some results about human genetics and there was there'd be some like super basic thing that they didn't even feel the need to to define kind of an assumption of their science that lets them move forward and the social scientists be like wait how can you how can you assume that I don't understand. And so then they would have to try to explain that. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's so it something when you get to things like, you know, the origin of life, it's, uh, that's where scientists are and philosophers and everybody are just forced to come together because the questions are so big and so hard and so multidimensional that, um, that no one's going to figure it out on their own. Yeah. It's interesting because that's where oftentimes I I was fascinated. The, the, I don't know, of like origins of life. And, and I, I mean, that, it's so fascinating that we just really, I mean, one guy you were talking to in this, what is life podcast, you were saying like, it's not that crazy. The idea that we're Martians, right? That, that like somehow maybe the way that we get, we go from the inorganic to organic reality. We, we see all around us is maybe something comes from another planet, like through some kind of asteroid impact and, and there's a spark and, you mm-hmm. know, and then all of a sudden the soup kind of gets mixed in a way that, you know, carbon-based organic life starts or something. That's just fascinating, like how how much we know about the world and yet how little we know really about the origins of life. Yeah, I mean that that is that is fascinating. I, but it you know it's what's interesting to me is that you know when when a scientist says you know, on the record, yeah, maybe we come from Mars. <laughs> Um, it's not that they're just saying like anything's possible. Right. They're not, right. they're, they're not actually saying that like they're, they're saying like <clears throat> the idea of life on earth originating on Mars is actually one of a few really compelling explanations for life on earth. You know, if you take all the evidence and all the research, you know, what, which ideas are, are holding up best. Martian life is pretty, it's definitely in the running. Um, <clears throat> not Mercury though. Like we, we did, we did not start on Mercury. It just you can rule that one out, you know, and why? Well, because Mercury has zero evidence of ever having had liquid water in a stable environment. Um, Mars did, and so you have Earth and Mars as like these two places. Um, you know, maybe Venus, but you know, getting getting material like from Mars to Earth uh, with like a big meteor impact, you can do it. I mean. We know you can do it because we actually have some meteorites on Earth that came from Mars. We've got the evidence, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like a court, you know, a courtroom. It's like, you know, we know that the stuff could get here. We, we, we know that, you know, Mars was quite Earth-like um, for a while. Um, so, like, there's, it's, it's plausible. You know, it's certainly worth poking around on Mars and, and seeing what those, those really old rocks look like. You know, if you find fossils there. Interesting. Are you a science fiction fan? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do. I do like science fiction, but I feel very dilettantish compared to my friends who are hardcore fans. You know, I can't. I, you know, you, you can. I, I, I can't cite chapter and verse from all sorts of classic writers. But just, I mean, just the the. But there's the genre. Like, I'm just wondering, as someone who who deals with, you know, writes about science for a wide audience. I mean, how, like, is it is it fun to see? Like, I mean, do you like imagine science fiction scenarios? I mean, I mean, you do a little bit of, of this, and she and she has her mother's life. When you talk, you you think about well, here's directions this these things could go with yeah. our, what we know about heredity and stuff. I mean. Is that I, I would just I just wonder if like the work just kind of leads you in those kind of directions imagination wise. Yes, I mean, and I think it should um, because uh, I think it, I, I think science fiction is great in that it le- it helps us to think about um, other realities. So you know, a reality that we might be moving towards, like what you know, what are we doing to the planet, and what is life going to be like. A hundred or a thousand years from now, um, I think we need science fiction writers to be 
thinking about things like that. Um, they can also point us to, you know, new ways of thinking about society, like, you know, how, how would human society work on more than one planet? I think that's, that's fascinating. Um, uh, and, and also, like, I like, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin or other writers who really take biology seriously and, you know, and sort of ask, like, um, you know, what would it be like to be, to have a bit of, a little bit of the biology of the other animals here on Earth, which are really weird. You know, we have lots of weird biology on Earth. So, um, and so, you know, I, and I do like when, some, you know, something I'm writing about that's real inspires a science fiction writer. So I've had a couple writers <clears throat> tell me that a book I wrote about parasites and along the way I talk about how parasites can control the minds of their hosts to advance themselves with their life cycle. They're just like, oh my God, like, there, there you go. There's a, a horror science fiction novel right there. Um, but yeah, so I, I do like that. Uh, the downside is that um, science fiction can be kind of a refuge for bad ideas. Um, so, you know, I, I've written a lot about editing DNA and uh, reproductive technology and all the rest of it. And, you know, everybody always responds by saying, yeah, but what about Jurassic Park? <laughs> right, Gattaca, you know? right? Yeah, or Gattaca. And I'm like, well, what? Okay, what? Okay, what are you talking about? What like, if we live in the Gattaca reality and then create Jurassic Park? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's saying like, if if you, uh, you know, if if you release mosquitoes that are resistant to the malaria parasite, we're Jurassic Park. Like, we're going to have dinosaurs running around. Like, it's like, come on, let's let's talk about the real issues here. You know, the real issues are. You know, maybe there's something about mosquitoes in the ecology that we don't understand yet, and and we could be doing you know harm uh, to an ecosystem the way we have already with invasive species. Like like let's that's when I kind of say like can we let's stop the science fiction. Um, so I have mixed feelings about science fiction. You don't you have a tapeworm named after you? I do. Do you, how like how is that like how did that come? What, what's it like when you're like oh my? Are you like a proud like? Is, do you have pride in it or like it, that's the best of the tapeworms really? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what's that like? You're like oh my gosh, there's a tapeworm. Um, so the naming of species is is a wonderful practice. I mean, it, and it's a very social act, you know, like scientists, they're always finding these new species and it takes a lot of work to describe them and then they have to give them a name and they, they give them names that they feel are meaningful either to them personally or to um, science as a whole or to society. And so when you look at the names and you see like how they chose them, um, it's, it's, it's a lovely experience. Um, there's actually a book that's uh, coming out pretty soon. It's just all about how species get their names. And uh, anyway, in my case, I wouldn't say my tapeworm, which is called the Cathobothrium zimmeri, I wouldn't say that's like, you know, the most amazing parasite um, uh, or to even tapeworm. I mean, there are like 20 or 30,000 species of tapeworm, many of which still need to be named. Mine's nice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's a meaty part of the curve. He's nice. He's a nice looking tapeworm. He's, yeah. You wouldn't be ashamed to take him home to meet mom. I mean. Well, you know, but th people think of tapeworms as being, you know, 20, 30 feet long. And that's true of like human tapeworms or a tapeworm that lives in a whale. Mine lives in a, a, uh, a shark and it's pretty small. You know, it's only like a, I think it's about an inch long. So, you know, um, but still it's, it's part That's of That's kind of exciting. Sharks have yeah. their own week. We have shark week. I mean, it's there like, you, could be, you know, you could be, your tapeworm could live much less interesting places. Yeah. So you need to have like shark parasite week because yeah. the parasite week is, the parasites are much cooler than the sharks. <laughs> <laughs> That, that that would be like a collection of things things only a science writer would say. Like this. <laughs> so your your book, uh, she has her mother's laughs. It, great, but and like I I grew up in South Jersey. I would have never imagined anything interesting about Vineland. Like I'm like, there's this one chapter in reading. You're like, I pull into Vineland. I know the Wawa you pulled into. I'm like, he's like, you're like, I pull in to get some peanuts. Like you're a great storyteller. You're like. Wow, he's at a Wawa in Violent, New Jersey. How could any, how could this contribute? But it does. I mean, it, you tell a fascinating story about the history of heredity and our understanding about it and and some really bad ideas that are critiqued by an intellectual giant like Walter Lippmann, a popular like all this in Vineland, New Jersey. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was kind of amazed that uh, just in this ordinary Jersey town on the outskirts, there are these ruins of this institution 
that it's got a really important place in the history of, um, well, just history period, I guess. I mean, if you're, you know, we think about eugenics as being this horror of, you know, Nazi Germany and think of the Holocaust and so on. But eugenics really, really got its start in the United States. And if you had to point to a place where it uh, it really kind of took off in, a, in, a, in the most dangerous way, you could say it was there in this place called the Violent Training School in Violent, New Jersey, um, because it was there that a psychologist named Henry Goddard um, got in touch with a geneticist named Charles Davenport um, in the early 1900s. And they said, hey, you know, these quote-unquote feeble-minded students uh, in this school, like maybe they inherited their feeble-mindedness. You know, maybe this is genetic. And at the time, that was like a really radical new idea. And so the way they thought they could prove it was to do genealogies of of the children there and see if it was carried down like Huntington's disease. Um, And it was a... kind of a fiasco. I mean, it was like, in terms of science, it was terrible. Um, but they convinced themselves that feeble-mindedness was something that was almost, you know, like on a single gene. And uh, and this was incre- became incredibly powerful and influential. So Henry Goddard actually literally was invited to Ellis Island to inspect immigrants coming off the boats. He decided that Italians, Russians, Jews, Poles, the majority of them were feeble-minded, were, were morons. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the Nazi biologists, um, they looked to Goddard as evidence, as proof of what they were arguing for. Um, this, this school, you know, went on, you know, they they moved on beyond. Hitler read his book, right? The Kalakak yeah. family. Hitler sure. read this guy's book that was working in Vineland, New Jersey. Right, right. And if you were, if you went to like a, a movie theater in the 1930s in Nazi Germany, like in Berlin, you went to see a movie, uh, there'd be like a little educational short at the beginning of it, maybe. And there's one of these shorts, it's called Heredity um, in German. And um, they're talking about heredity and why that means that, you know, we need to like prevent the undesirables from having children, which means sterilization or extermination. Um, and uh, then they just, for evidence, they show these family trees that that come from violent. That's their evidence that that this is justified. Um, and, you know, and in the United States, um, you know, the fact, you know, we, we also like to forget the fact that tens of thousands of people were sterilized um, uh, on the basis of this kind of, of uh, bad science. It's and, you know, the, it's it's a real testament that you can go to Vineland, you can you, you can walk or drive past these ruins and, you're, and you might say like, huh, I wonder what that is. There's no plaque, there's no sign, there's no nothing. Nobody really knows about about these huge moldering buildings. Um, but there's an amazing, terrifying story in them. You talk about, in, uh, in the beginning of the book, you talk about the Habsburg family and these attempts for successors and having children and, and, and notions of heredity. And then you talk about, you do a little bit of history throughout, you know, going from Aristotle throughout European history and different senses of of how things get passed on. And, you know, as I was reading it, I was reminded of T.S. Eliot says there's no such thing as a false theory. He says every theory is true from some pers- perspective you're standing. He said that's why schizophrenia is less a disease th- than a legitimate philosophical position. I mean, he's being tongue-in-cheek there, but he's like, if you're mm-hmm. in this lens of reality, and I mean, it's it seems that's part of the interesting thing, right? As, you, as you're researching this, do you find yourself saying, well, you could see how you could think this. Like, if basically all you knew was X, Y, and Z... You know, th- through the blood or through this, or I mean, these these theories we might laugh at them now or look at them out, but like, I mean, people were doing the best with what they had, right? Yeah, I mean, if you um, if you talk with somebody, you know, some scholar in the 1500s about the Earth, and they would like, they might, you know, show you like all of this uh, evidence indicating that the Earth is exactly whatever six thousand years old, you know what. Um, it, Nobody knew about um, uh, radioactivity as, as a way of measuring the Earth's age. You know, it's not like they were hiding it and then saying like, oh, well, let's just tell everybody the Earth is 6,000 years old. Uh, and um, likewise, um, you know, there, these, I, there were these ideas that somehow, you know, heredity was carried on in the blood. 
you know, and we still use that phrase, you know, uh, people will say, oh, does, I saw on the news not long ago, Elizabeth Warren has Cherokee blood or something like that. I mean, it's like, why are we talking about blood? It's like, well, what do we, what do we even mean? <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so, and I think you have to really, you do have to, if you're going to tell the, the, the history of science, um, you can't tell it just by saying like, okay, everything that we have right now is going to be the prism through which we look at all of history. Um, I just, that doesn't, that's not realistic. I mean, you need to look at what, what people were thinking about at the time that they were thinking and doing their work and what sort of ideas did they inherit, forgive the pun, that, um, that shaped their worldviews? And then how did things change from there? Um, and if you do that, then it becomes a very interesting, uh, things get much more interesting. You know, we think of Gregor Mendel as sort of the hero of genetics. He didn't know what genetics was. He had no idea. And he wasn't, he wasn't even thinking in those terms. He, he was in a, he was a totally different headspace. And so, you know, we, we can't sort of just sort of pretend like, oh, Mendel was just a modern geneticist thrown into 1850. That's just not what happened. Yeah. And people sort of build on Mendel's work and you, you sort of, chronicle this and and make mistake i mean they carry on his mistake i mean they carry on his mistaken assumptions and and yet somehow the uh, our knowledge still advances right despite the fact that oftentimes we have to go retroactively you know cor correct assumptions that got us there yes absolutely absolutely i mean it, it's um yeah i mean science is complicated you know um you know the same you know the same geneticist i mentioned who was involved in the violent training school work Charles Davenport, um, you know, so he, he, on the one hand, he has this terrible legacy of promoting eugenics, uh, of, and you know, promoting some bad biology. On the other hand, he did some really important work. So for example, you know, he, he believed that you could show how some diseases were, uh, inherited the way Mendel thought. And so Huntington's disease, he showed that, that Huntington's disease works like the same traits that Mendel was seeing in his peas. So, um, you know, it's it. Uh, science is not full of like simple heroes and villains. Everybody is complicated. Everyone's legacy is complicated, and there's no shortcut around that. Um, but you know, uh, the nice thing in writing books is that you can really explore that complexity. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught? frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ken skillman ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald jennifer spate ben dehart joel wentz Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah. You talk about that journalistic sort of Lee, like Elizabeth Warren has Cherokee blood. And how, it's interesting how just terms like that prejudice, how we think like we use them. And I'm thinking about like ancestry.com where you have these commercials. Well, I was walking around like a complete ass running around later hose and drinking, you know, uh, you know, drinking beer and, uh, then I got my ancestry and I found out from Scotland. So I went out and bought a kilt. I'm like, you look really rational now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, gosh, you've really, you've really come to your senses. You know, yeah. like, I mean, even that stuff, right. It's still like it kind of it, it, these sort of simple kind of narratives we tell about these things. Mm -hmm. They really, they, they prejudice the way we think about science and discovery, right? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it does. It, it we we make we start making demands on science. Uh, that you know, we want science to tell and to answer certain questions. Um, and science may not necessarily be able to answer them, um, or answer them in the way that we want. You know, so why is it so meaningful for somebody to uh, find out that they're from Germany or from Scotland? I mean, that's actually an interesting question. You know, I, I went, I was uh, chatting with a German biologist I know, and we were talking about these, you know, these ads and this, these companies and so on. And I was like, so how is this in Germany? Is this, or are they really, is ancestry testing really taking off there? And he's like, yeah, not really. I mean, we, we know where we're from. Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's not a, it's generally not a big mystery. Like, oh, I, I, you know, my family's been from Germany forever. And so I'm from Germany. So it really like when you've got um, recent migration, I mean, in the past, you know, 10 generations, that's when this starts to gain some power in how you identify yourself. Uh, and, um, and, and if you think about it, you know, there are situations like, for example, um, you know, if you're an Af- African-American, you descend from slaves. You descend from people whose identity was taken away from them, whose history was taken away from them. You know, their names were, were taken away. They, they were not, you know, they, they had kids who had no idea where, what country exactly the, their parents had come from. Um, and so, you know, you've got no paper trail at all. Uh, and so DNA is really like the only thing you've got. And so, um, so African American communities have really uh, embraced DNA uh, testing in this way um, and for this reason. Um, but you know, it's it's tricky, and I and I do think that all customers need to be careful about what they're trying to look for and what science can tell them because these estimates, like oh, you're from Scotland or from Italy or whatever, like those are statistical. Uh, hypotheses, uh, you know, like they, they're look, these companies are looking at thousands of people from around the world and looking for certain patterns in their DNA and then looking at your DNA and saying like, okay, what percentage of your DNA seems to <clears throat> strongly match markers that are from people in this part of the world? Um, and the thing is that every population has a lot of genetic diversity in it. And so the more people you can look at from each population, the more diversity you can see. And so people have had, you know, kind of frustrating experiences with, you know, Ancestry, like, updated their results based on more people. And, um, you know, I was reading one person's experience where they had uh, an African-American who had been told that a lot of her ancestry came from, I believe it's Cameroon, and then got the updated results. And they said, "Mm, sorry, no Cameroon, Angola. And she had, like, really, like, invested herself in learning about the people in Cameroon um, and trying to think about what that meant for her own, the story of her own history and origins. And then to suddenly find out, no, that was a statistical fluke. And we're pretty, we're pretty sure your ancestors are from Angola. That's hard. So, um, you know, this is like a brave new world that, that we're in of, of genealogy. I mean, like this just, this is just starting to happen the past year or two. And um, we really need to buckle up and we really need to like really understand what these tools are that we're trying to use to, to explain ourselves. Yeah. You, you actually had, I mean, you're, you, you learned some stuff about your own makeup, right? Like through the book. I mean, was it, what was that experience like? I mean, you were, uh, you were on, on the receiving end of that kind of data. Yeah. I mean, I got my genome, the entire genome sequenced uh, while I was working on the book. So, uh, you know, 23andMe will actually only look at about uh, about one in a thousand uh, letters in, in your DNA. Um, that's enough to get a good look at, at your origins and some uh, mutations that might be important for disease. But I was curious about how do, how do you get, how does the whole genome get sequenced and then what can you learn from it? Um, so it took a little work to get my hands on it. And then, you know, and then I was t- talking scientists into taking a look at my genome in the same way they were studying other genomes. And it was really fascinating. Um, and in terms of origins, I suppose, I guess the most interesting thing in terms of origins was that, um, you know, I, I decided to go way back. Um, so I, I went to a lab where people study um, Neanderthals. Um, and so, you know, Neanderthals interbred with the ancestors of humans maybe 60, 70, 80,000 years ago a few times. And different populations today have, you know, some remnants of Neanderthal DNA. So East Asians have, I think, about 3%. Europeans have around 1.5%. The, the numbers are fluctuating a little bit. Anyway, so uh, I didn't want to just have a percent. I wanted to see 
Like, what, what, what Neanderthal genes do I carry? And it was very weird, you know, to get a list. I mean, I have a list of all my Neanderthal genes. Um, but you have to sort of be cautious about that because, like, it's not going to, you know, we don't know enough about DNA uh, to, to, to just look at a list and say, aha, I, if I have a Neanderthal gene for this, that means that, I, I, that, that affects me this way. Um, it's, you it's have new microaggressions now. I hear somebody say, don't be such a Neanderthal. Hey, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I carry these are, you know, I, I carry these two genes, you know, these are my ancestry. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, the and, and the fact is that, like, what it means to be a Neanderthal or what it meant to be a Neanderthal is actually changing as well. You know, Neanderthals look to be a lot more resourceful and creative even than people gave them credit for. Uh, before, um, you know, the brains were as big or bigger than ours. Um, they seem to have done a, a lot of sort of symbolic kind of handiwork and so on. So, you know, um, it, it, it's the more we learn about Neanderthals, the more mysteries uh, scientists are finding. So it's fascinating. But um, but yeah, but, you Isn't know, that what, the, the real love story you want to see on screen, like the first Neanderthal homo sapien couple, like, you know, maybe it's like the Montesquieu's and the Capulets it's an ancient room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're trying sharks and the jets, you know, we're really trying to just make clan this of, thing clan work. Of the, and, clan of the cave bear, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's beautiful. It's a heartwarming story. <laughs> May, maybe or maybe it was less. uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe we would look at it at whatever encounter that was as being a little less romantic. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. But what's but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. We just don't know. But you know, one thing we do know is, which I think is really mind blowing, is that there were children who were 50 percent Neanderthal and 50 percent human, and those children were a. Uh, were were welcomed into human society. They had to be because they then passed down those Neanderthal genes to their descendants and so on and so on. And this happened uh, a lot more than once, it, it's clear. Uh, and, um, you know, what was that like? You know, what, what you know, like a, a, a child that was Neanderthal and human, like, you know, I... They, they probably would have looked visibly different than uh, other children in that small group, you know. Um, but that was not enough for someone to re- for them to be rejected. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know. And there are other kinds of humans out there that we didn't even know about till a few years ago. Like there's sort of an kind of an Eastern version of Neanderthals called Denisovans, and they interbred with humans. Um, and so, what happened there? We're good. Again, you know, I guess that's where we bring in the science fiction writers. <laughs> yeah, you, you have – one of the things that's so interesting in the book, you, you talk about – the whole chapter about chimeras, right? You, you, the, you think of the, this ancient creature, right, the chimera that's got all these different parts. It looks like sort of just – it looks like one of those things like the fly or something where the teleporter or a couple different you know things got spliced in and something came out. But this – you actually talk about there are people walking around with double geno- – two genomes, right? Is that, this is – so interesting. I mean, that you could, if you mapped them, you'd have you'd have a double map here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, we think of ourselves as being, you know, just one genome, um, but uh, there are ways that you can become a mishmash of of several genomes. Uh, and you know, one of the most dramatic ways is, uh, let's say that, um, uh, you know, let's say that there are fraternal twins in the womb and one of them dies early but in the meantime the twins were swapping their dna uh you know cells were actually moving uh between the embryos um these embryos uh can end up being sort of patchworks of those two different people and you know this can actually like turn out to be um Kind you know cause some serious problems uh, later on in life uh, if you don't know it. Um, so there was a woman, for example, who was needed a kidney transplant, and um, they said, "Okay, well let's let's test your sons to see if they're a match." And they came back and said, "Hmm, these are not your sons." Uh, and she's like, "Well, yeah, I, they are. Like I was there, and but you know, like the results were saying they weren't." Um, and that's not the only case I write about in the book where you know being a chimera suddenly like jumped in someone's face later in life. Um, I, the one that, uh, when I talk about it, the one that uh, certainly the women in the audience get kind of unsettled by is the fact that um, uh, you can also become a chimera as a mother because this the cells of a fetus 
can just slough off and sort of regular development and they circulate in the body. And, you know, mother's immune system will try to grab most of them and kill them off. But, uh, but some of them get can, can get through and just sort of settle in, and um, and then because they're fetal cells, uh, they have this the embryonic cells. They have this capacity to turn into all sorts of different tissues. So the child's cells can become muscle cells in the mother's muscles or brain cells in her brain. Uh, and so you know, I always tell mothers like, if you feel like you're just can't get those kids out of your head, who knows? Like maybe they really are there. It's interesting too. Like there's this theory or there this uh, field, burgeoning kind of field, epigenetics, right? We mm-hmm. we have tests that like where you could, I mean, you know, you talk about these experiments, right? Where we know that okay, you know, early experiments, you cut a bunch of tails off of rats or mice, and none of the mice are born with shorter tails. But yet, there are th- certain uh, things like rats, like they, there's certain smells that they develop, a chemical reaction, you know, it happens in them that creates a fear of a certain smell associated with an electric shock. And that gets passed on, you know, the, I guess the genome kind of changes, or so, the DNA changes, and then that's inherited. I mean, that's, uh, but but it doesn't look like that generally happens over long term yeah or that we know of yet right i mean it, this is cuz cuz when you throw that in the mix it, it makes evolution uh like i mean our our understanding of randomness is a little different at least because it seems like there's certain sort of adaptations get passed on in a way that's not that's environmental yeah yeah epigenetics is fascinating um uh, and it's certainly gotten incredibly, um, gotten an incredible buzz around it these days. I mean, I'll go and when I give my talks, you know, if I don't talk about epigenetics, you know, in the, during my own talk, when the question time starts, someone will say like, what about epigenetics? And, and, you know, it just seems like the word has gotten out. And, and it's interesting because epigenetics is really, when you get down to it, it's kind of a tricky, um, complex corner of biology. Um, because really what it has to do with is that, you know, you inherit these genes um, and, you know, genes are, are, are copied um, almost precisely exactly the same. Um, and so that's a, that is, you know, how a lot of people think about heredity. But, um, but which genes in a, in a cell are actually active and which ones are silent, that's, that's not really in the gene itself. That they're the, what happens is that some of the proteins encoded by these genes, they go and they grab onto DNA and they can turn on, turn genes on and turn them off and do it for a long-term period. And your experiences can actually like affect how those proteins do their job. So the question is, if you have an experience that changes which genes are on and off in your cells, can that itself be passed down to, to another generation. So that's what's called transgenerational epigenetics. And it's really controversial. Um, so you mentioned the, this, this amazing smell experiment where basically mice were, uh, male mice were, were exposed to a smell, learned to associate with an electric shock, and then their sperm were used to produce a new generation of mice. And those mice seem to respond in a funny way to that same smell. And you, you know, like it's, published in uh, nature, uh, nature neuroscience, and it's just, you know, boom, it's like, it's real peer-reviewed science. Um, however, uh, it really hasn't been replicated, at least it hasn't yet. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of other scientists to say, well, you know, the, the sample size was too small, and so on and so forth, they have problems with it. So, um that's kind of where we stand in a lot of ways with epigenetics, that there are some very provocative experiments, but then there are a lot of skeptics who say like, you know, where, where's the rest of the evidence and, and where's your, where's your sort of full explanation for how this could possibly work? Cause it really kind of doesn't jive with a lot of biology. So, um, you know, it's a work in progress is the way I see it. And that would say, so, I mean, the thing where that would cha- seem to challenge the story we learned like in elementary school or grade school, you know, middle school and high school biology where, you know, you evolution works in a way that like, well, you know, we're, you're in, you got a bunch of bears and say the North pole and, you know, millennia, millennia ago, one gets born with translucent fur that looks white against the snow. Right. And then a couple more that gets passed on. It's random. It's a random mutation, but it helps them because they can hide and, you know, I guess pounce on penguins quicker or whatever. And then, you know, but you know, you, it could have been, you know, there were gray mutations to all sorts of mutations and random ones. Have, but epigenetics would seem like, okay, like there's research on corn, right? Like this mm-hmm. certain 
uh, kind of things that are traumatic for corn it adapts to make, become more resilient and then it gets passed on. Then it would seem like evolution, the evolutionary story, if, if they, and again, they, we don't have the samples probably to make a grand claim, but that would seem yeah. to then the story, it, it seems a little, it's like a, a little smarter. <laughs> like in, yeah. in addition to random stuff, there's also adaptive things on the fly that then mm -hmm. get passed on, which would, that would mean kind of a different story. Well, um, yes and no. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we, so evolution, just working on genes uh, with, natural, with natural selection can produce organisms that, um, that are flexible, that can, you know, that they, they, uh, they take in, you know, they perceive environmental change and their bodies and their behaviors adjust. And, and that, that happens in one's lifetime. And, you know, I mean, like if we go, if, if, you know, we're, we're, you and I are talking at low altitude. If we go up to, you know, the Andes or Tibetan plateau, our bodies are going to, are going to perceive that we're at high altitude and they're going to respond by making extra blood cells. You know, it's like, oh, that was smart. That's a good idea. Yeah, it is a good idea. Um, and that's an adaptive response. Okay. And there are adaptive responses that could, um, actually extend not just, just to the next generation. You know, and, and, you know, I was sounding super skeptical before about epigenetics, but for plants, the evidence is much better. And just to give you one example, um, if, if plants are attacked by insects, they make, they, they churn out a lot of chemicals, um, to try to kill off the insects. Um, and there are certain little molecules that are really instrumental in turning on all the toxin genes. Um, and those little molecules, um, once they're being produced, they can end up in the seeds that the plant produces. And then that makes the next generation of plants um, much faster in responding to the insects with these chemicals because they've inherited all those little molecules not just the genes, but these molecules. And um, so that's better, you know, like uh, you want, you want to be primed to, to respond really quickly if you're in a place where there are lots of insects going after you. So, um, you know, you can argue like, well, is that really radically different than the way people thought about evolution before? Or is that just evolution just showing you how amazing it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what, sa what sounds different to someone who's not, like, immersed in it is, like, one like one way, I think traditionally, you know, you get taught this in school is that, well, you know, one of these plants is, can do these chemicals or whatever, and then, you know, it it, it, it becomes the dominant one, as opposed to, like, plants re react, and, and, and the adaptable thing you get taught to, but then the fact that the adaptation can then be passed on, one that one that was, like, you know, not just a random mutation, but one that was by stimuli. I mean, that, that seems to like, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and maybe it's just, we're learning more about the, the complexity of the story. We are, but we're learning slowly and, and, you know, it's so, I mean, you know, it's, it's so intriguing. Um, and, and it's, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a biologist to be intrigued by epigenetics. Um, and, and so it would be really nice to, to ha to, you know, have things either confirmed or discarded and all the rest of it. But, um, really like, you know, epigenetics is still, um, it's a science that's really very much still in its infancy. Um, and, and it's, and it's moving slowly because it's, these, these are hard questions to answer, you know, and one reason is that, um, uh, you know, the way that, you know, so that you have all, so you, if you think of your genes, um, and that you've got all these little proteins and RNA molecules that are all sort of clumped up on each other, scattered along, uh, your DNA, and there are millions of them you know, millions of them. And um, their, that, their patterns, uh, what are called the epigenetic marks, they're different. Um, they're not just different from one person to another. They're different from one cell in your body to another cell in your body. So like, what does that mean? What does that language mean? Um, it's, it's really hard to say because um, part of this, you know, like part of what epigenetics does is it changes the three-dimensional structure of your DNA, and, you know, sometimes in order to, and sometimes in order to turn on like a gene, you have to pull in uh, certain segments of DNA to touch that, the, that gene. And, and some of that DNA has to come from another chromosome. And it's just this incredible tangle that's, that your cells are able to manage. Um, and we just, we're, we can't actually see that dance happen. You know, we can, 
get these indirect clues to it. So um, it's a it's a fascinating area of research, really complicated, and we're not going to get a lot of the answers we really want, actually, for quite a while, I think. You said in a talk at Rockefeller University in September of 2017 that, that democracy, science, and journalism are three valuable institutions that have made life far better uh, than it would be have been without them. But you warn about, you know, these things you know, trying to protect them and keep them free from corruption. Is it, is it weird that we are in a, in a, I mean, our culture, you know, North America, United States, we, we, you know, we've got to be the culture in history that's benefited the most from science and scientific development. And, and yet at the same time, there's this wide scale, you know, often on a good day indifference to science and, and, on, 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 and, oftentimes in quarters of the culture, outright hostility. I mean, it's not like bitterly ironic. I mean, it's such a weird thing that that would develop in a culture like ours. Well, we've, I think we've had a complicated relationship with science ever since, you know, the founding of the Republic. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, you, you, uh, there was a lot of, you know, even in the 1800s, you know, there was great science that was being done in, you know, geology or, or uh, zoology, paleontology. But then, you know, um, American scientists also were working really hard to establish the inferiority of blacks through science in the 1800s, um, just as a way of sort of justifying, you know, the the sort of economic system uh, of the country. Uh, and this wasn't, you know, a few cranks on the edge. These were people who were like the mo- some of those famous scientists in the country. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, and when, um, you know, uh, you know, it's not like, um, I, I write about a lot about evolution. And so, you know, there's nothing new about, uh, and, you know, opposition to science in the world of evolution. You know, it's, it's well over, uh, you know, well over a hundred years that, um, you know, that, that American Protestants, uh, particularly evangelical or fundamentalist Protestants have just said, well, this can't be true or everything that we believe ha- necessarily must fall apart. So these are, um, you know the 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 twenty first century version of all this American anti science. You know it's it is new in some ways, but um, there I don't think there are going to be easy fixes for it because it has very deep roots. Um, but yeah, but I I it is very concerning that um, the indifference you talk about. You know, like you know who who you know who who cares uh, if if we keep up with scientific advances or not. You know, um, it's it just, you know, the United States um, has been, you know, in in the post-war, like the leading scientific power in terms of making incredible advances in medicine and, and all the rest. Um, now it's, you know, we're, 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 we, we're still, not, you know, the, at the top in, in, in a, some areas, but the, the margins are shrinking fast. Um, and if you look at other countries, say like China, in terms of their investment in science, it's huge compared to ours as a percentage of GDP. It's interesting. We were talking earlier about Aristotle. You know, Aristotle knew way less about the world, the natural world, than the physical world than we do. I mean, he knew probably the most about it on, you know, for any one of his time. I mean, the guy was polymath and amazing, but he knew way less about the world than we do. And yet he felt more at home in it, right? Because he could, he could unite like teleology to knowledge. So like for him, how you thought about ethics and politics were not disconnected from how you thought about biology and things like this. Whereas for us, those things have, have become disconnected in in many ways. And for, for some really good reasons, uh, I wonder though, is that it seems like a lot of people feel, even though we know more about the world, we feel less at home in it, or there's more alienation, more sense of nihilism. And how do we make sense of it all? I mean, is it, is that hard, you know, I, I wonder how, like, we deal with that sort of increasing knowledge of of how how things work, but then when it's disconnected from sort of questions of why and value. I mean, like, do we need more work on how to how to think about that stuff? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, and I think that um, I, I think that uh, if you do that, if you com- if you if you combine, maybe this is just the English major in me talking, but you know, I just feel like if you if you combine a good education in science with a good education in the humanities, with with philosophy, with history, with the social sciences, <clears throat> then um, you know people who themselves are not science scientists won't see 
the natural sciences as this hostile alien world that's telling them things that they'd rather not believe. Um, and at the same time, actually, what's also important is that scientists themselves will be um, better ethical people. Uh, um, you know, I, I mean, the, uh, you know, we've had um, some real, um, some really scary um, things happening at, you know, with, with people using scientific advances, for example, to edit the genes of babies um, without r- really thinking much about um, the, the, the ethics of doing so. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I definitely think that, um, trying to, to, um, to bring together the, those, those two sides of, of the human mind is, is an important thing. Well, your work, she has her mother's laugh in your podcast and, and your comms are a great example of, of doing that kind of stuff. Thanks for talking um, about your work with me uh, on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Carl for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh. And his podcast, What is Life? You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.